We are in Judges chapter 3, verse 7. This begins the second section of Judges, the largest section. And this is basically where we go through all the judges, the major and minor judges. Remember that there is a cycle that is being displayed in these sections, so you know when each cycle begins by it saying, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of Yahweh. That's the beginning of a new section. It always begins with Israel doing evil because they have given themselves over to apostasy. They have stopped obeying God. They have stopped eliminating the enemies. They have decided to live among them and even intermarry with them. So that's the first stage. The second stage is that then they become oppressed. God, they either just become oppressed because that's what bad guys do, or God literally hands them over into the enemies to discipline them and judge them. The third stage is that they then cry out to God for help. Even though they completely rejected him and abandoned him and went after other gods, when it comes right down to it, they know that those other gods don't really care about them and cannot rescue them. They cry out to Yahweh, to which Yahweh responds. The next stage is Yahweh raises up a deliverer. We talked about the fact that the first two judges, Othni and Ehud, it specifically says he raises up a deliverer because in his mind they do meet the definition of deliverer. From that point on, he is technically raising up a deliverer, but he doesn't call them that because in his mind they don't meet the official definition, even though they will serve and function to differing degrees like a deliverer. And that's where the judges come in. So obviously the first three stages, apostasy, crying out to God, intermixing, being oppressed. So apostasy, being oppressed, and crying out to God, those are usually really brief, quick statements. The bulk of the cycle is the judge that is lifted up. And then it usually ends with the deliverance of them and the land having rest for a while until the next cycle. So that's what we're going to be going through here. What is the main idea of this section? The main idea is this, that a nation is only as good as its leaders. This is a very important thing to understand. A nation is only as good as its leaders. Individual people within the nation most certainly can and a lot of times are better than the leaders, but the nation as a whole can never become greater than its leaders. And that's really important. We can look around and we can see a lot of godly people that outshine most of the leaders in government. The problem is the nation as a whole can never become more than the leader it's leading them. And so unless God brings a revival, but usually that means removing the leader in some kind of way. So this is the main idea that is being presented here, that as you watch the leaders you need to understand that the people can only be the same or less in character than the leader that we're watching. So what we're going to see is the de-evolving of the character of the leaders so that when we're done with this middle section, you'll see how the people are after the result of having these leaders for a long period of time. So that's kind of what we're going through here. The first one is Othniel. The first judge is Othniel. Othniel's important because he's going to set the standard. We already talked about him because we've already been briefly introduced to him with Othniel, the nephew of Caleb, who marries Aksah. He demonstrated that he was obeyed God and defeated the city without hesitation, completely relying on God and trusting in him. 
And then the way that he, the Aksa, the daughter, is treated by Caleb and Othniel shows us. So Othniel's already been set up as a man who sets the standard in a defeating the city kind of a way and taking care of women kind of way. Now we're going to see him in the third demonstration of actually delivering Israel. And so he's going to become the standard, the litmus test for every other judge. What does it mean to be a deliverer? Verse 7, the Israelites did evil in Yahweh's sight. They forgot Yahweh their God and worshipped the Baals and the Asherahs. Now it doesn't mean that they literally forgot him. The idea is that they abandoned them relationally. They forgot what the relationship with Yahweh meant. They forgot their Deuteronomic covenant with Yahweh and they abandoned him. So more of an idea is like rejecting or divorcing your spouse and moving on to somebody else kind of an idea. Yahweh was furious with Israel and he turned them over to King Kashan Rishithim of Aram Nahathriam. They were cut... They were Kushan Rathiam's subjects for eight years. So this one specifically says God handed them over. They wanted to serve the pagan gods. They wanted to be like the nations. Then God says, fine, I will let you join them. And then, of course, those nations oppress them. The king is, this is a Mesopotamian king. So it, this is Israel. And if you move up the map and off the map, and slightly east, you will hit Mesopotamia. Kushan is a king over a Mesopotamian territory. During this time period, we have actually records of Mesopotamian kings controlling Canaan, or Israel at this time period, and having great influence over them, which matches up totally with the book of Judges of them being handed over into the enemy all the time. Rishathanium might not actually be his name. This Hebrew word actually means doubly wicked. And so the more the idea is this might be a word that the narrator is attaching him, that he might be like Ivan the Terrible. So he might be known as Kashan the Doubly Wicked. That's the title that they've given to him, which means this guy is, look, all Mesopotamian kings were jacked up evil. So if you get the nickname Doubly Wicked, there is nothing good about you. So... Unless he's a really good chess player. He oppresses them for eight years. For eight years they are oppressed by him and taken over. Verse 9. When the Israelites cried out for help to Yahweh, he raised up a deliverer. Okay, remember that this is the word Shaphat. And Shaphat has the idea of a literal, physical deliverer, like a superhero kind of a way. But it also in this context means spiritually releasing them from their bondage and bringing them back into a relationship with God kind of deliverer. So it has both the political liberation kind of a definition to it, as well as the spiritual freeing you from your sins, bringing you back to God kind of a sense to it. For the Israelites who rescued them, his name was Othniel, son of Kenez, Caleb's nephew. And we already talked about the fact that this should be better understood as nephew because Caleb has a different name. His father's name is different and Othniel's father is different from that. Yahweh's spirit empowered him and he led Israel. When he went to do battle, Yahweh handed over to him King Kashath Rishathim of Aram and he overpowered him. And the land had rest for 40 years. Then Othniel's son of Kenez died. Short, sweet, to the point. What it says is that the spirit of Yahweh empowered him or came down upon him. First thing we need to understand is 
the spirit of Yahweh did not indwell people in the First Testament. There was no indwelling of the Holy Spirit like we think of today. And the reason is the only way, the Bible makes it very clear that God is holy and he is righteous and there is no sin in him, no darkness, no evil in him whatsoever. First John chapter 1 says, God is light and in him there is no darkness, period. Absolutely no exceptions. And so Leviticus presents this idea. Exodus presents this idea. And so God makes it very clear that when he appears on Mount Sinai, when he comes in the tabernacle, he makes it very clear, tell the people not to come anywhere near me lest they die. Now, God is so holy and so righteous that his righteousness literally exudes out of him in a physical manifestation. It's what we know as the glory of God. Or Deuteronomy calls it the Shekinah glory of God because Shekinah is the Hebrew or Shekinah is the Hebrew word for dwelling. So the dwelling presence glory of God. And when Isaiah comes into his presence, he says, Woe is me, I am undone. Now if you translate that into a modern day scientific society, it would be I am being molecularly undone on a biological level. So the reality is like he's just going to disintegrate. God is so holy and righteous it's not that like, oh, he can't be in the presence of evil because he can't handle it, or the evil will somehow contaminate him and it will like spread through him. It's more the idea that his righteousness is so great that it literally eradicates all evil on the spot. It's just God is holy and he's a purifier. He is pure, he is holy, and he purifies everything. And because he loves us, well, one, we're kicked out of his presence because he can't have that kind of a sin and evil in his presence. But at the same time, he kicks us out because he loves us too much for us to be eradicated and killed and eliminated. So there's only three ways that you can come in the presence of God. If you're sinless, which only applied to Adam and Eve in the First Testament. If you're surrounded by a whole bunch of angels, which we learn about with um, Moses on Mount Sinai, Isaiah in chapter 6, coming before God and other places. And if you have the blood of Jesus Christ, which means that God's spirit can't indwell you. If you're evil and sinful and God's spirit indwells you, you will be eradicated and destroyed. The reality is the angels can't indwell you and protect you as a shield from God's presence, eradicating you. And you're not sinless, so it can't happen because the blood of Christ hasn't come yet. And this is one of the reasons that God sends his son to die on the cross so the spirit can actually indwell us. That's why Jeremiah 31, 31 says, there's a day that's coming when I will put my law in your hearts. And Joel chapter 2 says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. And so this is a revolutionary idea for the people of the Second Testament at the cross when Christ actually talks about indwelling. And when Acts chapter 2 happens, that is revolutionary. First time ever. Therefore, that can't happen. So, in the First Testament, God would clothe you temporarily. The Holy Spirit didn't really come upon you. There are three people that usually, three groups of people that usually get anointed. Priests are anointed, though it never specifically says that they get anointed. We are told that Aaron and his sons get anointed in numbers. They are then chosen as Levites to have the anointing of God 
So the assumption is throughout the rest of the Bible, the priests are anointed. And the word anointed literally means to just be the, the chosen one. Somebody is chosen. The word is Meshach in Hebrew, which means Messiah. They just seem to have an office of being chosen by God. Prophets are the same way. We're never really told about prophets getting anointed. Elisha is the only prophet that specifically where God says, go anoint Elisha. Other than that, it just seems to be the idea that they are. The ones that really stand out as actually getting anointed are the kings. We are told that they literally took oil and anointed Saul. They anointed David. They anointed Jehu. They knew. There seems to be more of an emphasis on kings literally going through an anointing process. In this sense, and then we see places where like artists, the artists who um, design, well, night they didn't design, God designed it, but they added their artistic touches to the tabernacle. They got anointed by God. We're told at other times that people get anointed. But the ones that really stand out the most are priests, prophets, and especially kings. And the idea is the Holy Spirit comes upon them. Now it's temporary. It only comes upon you for a certain amount of time. So when the Holy Spirit comes upon a lot of these judges, it'll come upon them. When they do what they're supposed to do, we're told that the Holy Spirit leads, leaves in a sense. Or we're under the assumption that they did. Because when we get to Samson, we're told that the Spirit of the Lord came upon him. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him. The Spirit of the Lord. So the assumption is it's only staying with him for a certain amount of period of time. Now when Saul gets it, he gets the anointing, but he's going to get it for the entirety of his kingship, which suggests something that God only sees the judges operating in a very short time if the kings are going to get their entire time. But you can lose your anointing. God can take your Holy, the Holy Spirit away from you like it does with Saul when he rejects him in chapter 15 or 1 Samuel. And then immediately in chapter 17, is follow, well, chapter 16 is followed up and the evil spirit came in and replaced it. So you can lose it. David, when he gets anointed in chapter 16, the verse right before Saul loses his, basically gets his anointed spirit. But then when he rapes Bathsheba and kills her husband, he writes a psalm and says, Lord, don't take my, your Holy Spirit from me. Because David knows very well if Saul lost his anointing just for not killing all the Amalekites, then, oh my goodness, what's God going to do to David after this direct sin? And so he begs, please don't do to me what you just did to Saul. There was actually a song in the 80s and 90s where we sang, Take not thy Holy Spirit. That's solely theologically incorrect. For the First Testament, David can pray that. But in the Second Testament, we are told that we are sealed. And therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That neither life, nor death, nor heaven, nor hell, or anything above or below can separate us from the love of God. So if you're, somebody sings that song somewhere, don't sing it. It's not <laughs> biblical. It's unnecessary fear. And so the reality is it came in temporary. This is how it's working. It's coming down, clothing him, empowering him to do something, and then it releases him. We'll talk about this more when we get to the prophets, but the reality is, what is the purpose of the Spirit of Yahweh or the Holy Spirit? I know we talk about it a lot, and we can go on a lot more what the purpose is in a Second Testament connotation, but in the First Testament, the basic, simple definition of the Holy Spirit is to empower you to do God's will. To supernaturally empower you to do God's will. That's basically the primary definition of what is the purpose of the Holy Spirit. So, here's the reality. 
What is God's will for Israel at this time in history? Well, according to Deuteronomy, it is to eliminate all the people in the land of Canaan. So when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, it is to empower you to do the will of Yahweh. Yahweh's will for the people is to eliminate the enemy that lives in the land, especially when they're oppressing God's people. That means that when Othniel feels the power of the Holy Spirit come upon him, he should immediately go into wiping out the enemy mode. And that's what we see without hesitation. The Holy Spirit comes upon him and empowers him. He goes out and he defeats the enemy. It is a brief sentence. Empower, go out, defeat the enemy, gives them rest. Why is it short and sweet? Because it's not epic. And it's not epic because the enemy is no competition to Yahweh. And so it's short and sweet in that kind of a sense. In today's connotation, when the Holy Spirit comes upon us, the disciples didn't go out and just start killing a bunch of Romans in Acts chapter 2. And the reason was, is that was no longer God's will for the people of Israel. And by people of Israel, I mean all those by faith, not ethnicity like it had been. What we are told in Acts chapter 1, 8, before chapter 2, Christ comes along and says, Behold, I will send my Holy Spirit, and he will come upon you in power to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so God specifically says, My will now for you is to be my witness. And then before that, in Matthew 28, he says, Behold, I give you the authority to go out and make disciples of all people. So we're specifically told that God's will for us is to be discipled, conformed into the image of Christ, and to be his witness to other people so that they can be conformed to the image of Christ. When the Holy Spirit comes upon you, the same supernatural power that's going to come upon Samson, give him the ability to kill thousands of people with his bare hands in one moment, is the same power that's going to come upon you to give you the confidence and the ability to truly conquer those sins in your life, to become more Christ-like, and to have the courage to go out and speak the gospel and transform lives. And so you need to realize that I, I know a lot of times in this superhero day and age, you would really like to go out and like do some butt-kicking, with the Holy Spirit kind of stuff. But you have to realize that same power that's in them is also in us to defeat the sins and the, the fortresses that are in us and those vices and addictions that grip us and to go out and speak confidently with the words that God wants to speak and not the words that we somehow have to, have to conjure up right in the moment. The mission has changed now, but it's the same empowering, the same empowering. So Othniel just simply goes out without hesitation and obeys and conquers the enemy. And though they were oppressed for eight years, he brings them rest for 40 years. So the peace that God grants them is far greater. And that's important to understand too, is because when this judge operates within the Holy Spirit in obedience to the will of Yahweh, the peace and the rest that God grants is far greater than the judgment and the oppression that God handed them over to. 
Yes, there might be consequences, and yes, God might hand you over, and yes, God might use things to um, bring consequences and judgment in your life, but he always promises a much greater rest than anything that you've gone through. And so even today, it's been thousands of years that we have not experienced rest since Christ in this world. And a lot of Christians throughout history have asked, how much longer? But in light of the promise that Christ is going to come back one day and establish his kingdom on earth where there is no more evil or suffering or sin, and that's going to last for all eternity, that rest is far greater than the the millenniums of suffering and evil that we could possibly go through in this creation. And I know eternity in comparison to 2,000 years somehow feels very abstract and like, well, yeah, that's nice for you to say that. But at the same time, we also have to hold on to the fact that there is a truth there. There is a truth there. Even though our brains can't totally comprehend that so much. That's the first judge. Short, sweet, here's the standard. The Holy Spirit comes upon you. Without hesitation, you obey the will of God by defeating the enemy with the power of the Holy Spirit, not through your own strength, and immediately brings a rest that is far greater than the oppression. And then he led them for 40 years. Now, probably that was the only time that Othniel did anything really amazing. The sense is that from that point on, he leads them. And he just acts as a normal judge executing God's will on earth. Now, notice the peace only lasts as long as he was alive. So Othniel is down in here in Judah. The fact that Cushan was from Mesopotamia gives you the impression that Cushan's oppression occupied most of Israel. Occupied most of Israel. And therefore the peace can be assumed that it occupied most of Israel as well. 